So, I am thrilled that you're here, and please help me welcome uh, Dr. Woodard to Well, thank you, everybody, for coming. This is overwhelming. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Karen and Father Charlie and also uh, Sarah from the Garavanta Center for inviting me and setting everything up. Um, also, yes, can you all hear me, by the way? Is that okay? Okay. Yes? Cool. Um, and then also, yes, thank you to my parents for having me and um, for, making, <laughs> for making the trip up here and also my friend Kevin, who also trekked up here as well. It's good to see that a history major, you know, went on to, to, to bribe brighter and better things, but it's like, there, it's great. Um, and so, yeah, thanks to all the rest of my friends and colleagues for, and all my students for being here as well. Um, so, uh, also, I'll give you I'll give you another one of my plugs just really quick. If you haven't stopped by the Buckley Center Gallery yet, all of the posters that are up in there, partially thanks to Mackie for helping me not lose my mind putting those up. Uh, so those, some of the things we're going to talk about tonight, you can actually see the actual stuff, or at least in photographic form. So the posters are real, and then there's photographs of billboards and photographs of comic books and things like that. So so go ahead and take a look. Um, so, really quick, I guess my, my interest in Latin America started after undergrad. Um, I went to Peace Corps in Guatemala and became interested in, in U.S.-Latin American relations and then started, uh, you know, we were forbidden to go to Cuba and so, uh, on pain of being thrown out. And so, of course, I wanted to go and then started reading more and more about that. And then that eventually led to, to grad school and then to this. Um, and then my interest in visual culture and sort of the, the visual side of this also came from, from sort of this other interest in film and everything. And so, and I always tell my students, please study what you love because otherwise that's your own fault, right? So definitely <laughs> this was sort of the things that I really liked. Um, Cuba's obviously been in the news a lot lately. So this is, there's a lot of things going on, some of which, of course, no, nobody understands what this sonic thing is. I'd be happy to throw my theories out there afterwards if you want to talk about that. Um, but certainly since 2014, when we started to normalize uh, relations with them, it's been, it's been in the news a lot more, which has been great. So... Um, when Karen, uh, when Karen asked me to do this and I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? And she's like, well, you know, it's the Garavanta Center. And I said, uh huh. She's like, well, you know, Catholics and, and, you know, American life. And I said, all right, so I can roll with that. So we're doing, we're doing Cubans and Americans and Catholics. That's what we're basically doing tonight. So, so, and anybody who's taken my classes will understand this is going to go all over the place and be too fast. And the PowerPoint died an hour ago and I redid it. So here we go. Uh, this will be interesting. Um, so just to to read to uh, to refresh, <laughs> there's Cuba. <laughs> it's 90 miles from Florida. It's 120 miles from the Yucatan Peninsula. So it's always been con considered strategic to the United States because it it corks up the Mississippi River, and so anybody who controlled the island controls the the Gulf of Mexico. And so we always had our eyes on it from the beginning of the United States. The United States viewed it as something that should be a natural appendage. Uh, Jefferson and Adams each referred to it, you know, using fruit metaphors.
metaphors of, you know, the apple that's going to fall naturally into our hands. And essentially our stance was is that unless the, once the Spanish, you know, inevitably would let it go, we wanted it. And no other European power should have any control. And, of course, that then spun into nobody, not even the Cubans, should have control over this island. So, so we have been intimately involved with them. Uh, for a long time. Cuba's the last, one of the last Spanish colonies. So all the rest of the Spanish colonies go in the 18, you know, 1810 to 1820s, basically. Cuba stays until 1898 when the United States intervenes, um, and takes over the, takes over the island. So about 800 miles long, um, around 11 million people, slightly, slightly more. About two million, two million of those people live in the capital city of Havana on the western side there. Um, Super geologically, uh, environmentally diverse. I highly recommend you visit, um, no matter what anybody says um, at any time. Um, so the first peoples uh, on Cuba were part of the Arawak tribe, the um, Taino. And again, estimates vary as to what their population size was. The largest estimate is somewhere you know, slightly under a million. Other people say far less. Um, they were sort of semi-sedentary, um, eating lots of kind of, um, you know, roots, uh, and, and, and sort of hunting on the tri- on, on the island. Their religion, since we're talking about religion, is, is polytheistic with these sort of ancestral, ancestral gods really connected to the elements and to agriculture, including one, which unfortunately the Caribbean is very familiar with right now, which is the god of, of fierce winds, right, or, or hurricane, which they came up with that word. And so, so that's who's there before the Spanish show up, right? And so this guy, right, Christopher Columbus, um, he's he traveled all over Europe, tried to sell this idea of of going going west to get east, and he finally finds some Catholic monarchs in Spain who are really into it, and send him off in 1492, which is a very, you know a small gamble basically, right? They need money. They've been fighting Muslims for over a decade, which is a good way to become bankrupt, and so they they uh, they needed cash, and here comes this crazy Italian sailor with this this idea, and they say, okay, nobody else believes you in Europe, but We'll, we'll buy it, right? And they, so they fund him with three ships, um, and away he goes. And on his first voyage, uh, which we're not quite there, October 12th, right, is when he arrives in 1492, so almost there. Um, on his first voyage, he actually does land, um, he lands in the Bahamas first, but as you can see, then he goes down to Cuba and kind of bumps along the coast of Cuba and then to um, Hispaniola and then back. And they make several voyages. But that's the first, you know, this is the first sort of point of contact where Catholicism first arrives, um, arrives on the island. And of course, they went, you know, they went with the idea essentially of getting wealthy, but also spreading, you know, spreading the word of God. And they certainly were, they were all very much believers, um, in this. The conquistadors maybe a little less. They were more concerned with, uh, with money. So, unfortunately for the, the Taino um, Native Americans, the Europeans also bring with them a whole slew of diseases which wipe out around 90% or more on the islands. The die-off rate's 50% other places, but on the, in the Caribbean islands, it really it destroys, uh, destroys the Native population almost completely. Uh, those who don't die from disease then are ruined by the Spanish institutions such as the encomienda and just general Spanish badness. Um, which then the um, 
the sort of the most famous person within this is a Native American, Atue, who escaped from Hispaniola only to go to Cuba and then and fight again against the Spanish. And when they, they burn him at the stake, he famously, he's, you know, he's asked by, he's asked by a priest, um, if, if he would like to be baptized and therefore he could go to heaven. And Atue thought about it famously, or the story goes, thought about it for a minute and, and turned to the priest and said, well, are there going to be, are there going to be Spanish in heaven? And he, and he said, well, yes. And he's like, well, then no. <laughs> he's like, I'd rather, I'd rather go to hell than spend any more time with you people. And so then they burn him. Um, <laughs> Uh, another another Catholic at the same time who witnessed this, uh, Bartholomew de las Casas, a Dominican. He he's one of the first priests who basically who recognizes that what the Spanish are doing to the Native Americans is wrong and recognizes them as being human and writes his short account of the destruction of the Indies, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five hundred pages, so it's not that short. But um, he he basically goes on to try and say, you know, we need to protect these people and that what you're doing to them is is wrong and it, and you know and basically says that if if they don't stop you know persecuting um, persecuting the, the the Native Americans, then the Spanish will go to hell. Unfortunately, he doesn't say the same thing for Africans, and essentially he's, uh, he's sort of one of the people that encourages people to sort of bring African slavery. So they don't have Native American labor, so they're gonna, um, they're gonna bring in, bring in Africans. So the, the church establishes itself in Cuba, and then the real form of wealth that's gonna come out of the island is, cause they don't have any gold or, or silver of any, of any note, but it's cash crops like sugar and coffee and tobacco. And sugar being the, the main baddie. So, sugar starts to be a big, a big crop. And of course, anytime you hear the word sugar, you should think slavery in your head. And so, lots of slaves are, are forced to come, um, to the, to the Caribbean. Uh, Brazil gets the most, but the West Indies get a lot as well. Um, and so along with, along with, uh, along with the, the people, they're also bringing their religion. And so then another dominant religion in Cuba besides Catholicism is also the African-based religion of, of Yoruba or Santeria. And so what Santeria does is takes African gods and hides them essentially behind Catholic saints in order that the, the Africans could continue to, to practice their religion in, in secret. Um, and so it kind of goes, this is sort of the good chart that I found where you have, you have the Orisha or the god hidden behind different saints. So, so Yamaya, right, is behind Nuestra Senora de Regla, right? Django is behind Santa Barbara. So you, you would, you would be praying to the saint and thus not be getting in trouble, but you would be actually praying to your African god. And Santeria is still, still prominent on the island. So about somewhere between around, I would say, slightly more than 60%, maybe not quite 70% of Cubans identify as Catholic, but they may also be in Santeria or in Spiritualismo or one of these other religions that's pretty prominent on the island. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of um, spiritualism, right, on the island. A lot of people, there's a lot of, but it's a lot of mixture basically going on. And that, that holds true sort of all the way from the from the arrival of the slaves until until now um so um oh there's some slides that i lost i was like where's my spanish american war like gone okay so in 1898 uh the united uh, the there's three wars of independence and the spanish are going to lose and in 1898 the united states uh gets involved and we fight for four months from april until august and we essentially uh, take over the island, and then we hold the island for a couple of years. 
um, until finally we grant uh, Cuba into sort of pseudo-independence under the Platt Amendment. Um, 24 years after their independence, then Fidel Castro is born, right, in the, the eastern side of the island. He's born to a pretty wealthy family. He and his two other brothers, um, Raul and Ramon, never really, you never really hear much about Ramon. He also just died. These guys have really good genes. They keep going on and on. Uh, and then Raul there in the center. Ramon, Ramon, Ramon participated in the revolution, but then went back to the farm and just kind of mellowed out. Like so, he just didn't really—he wasn't really in the spotlight too much. Whereas Fidel and Raúl have obviously been have been uh, in charge of that country since 1959. Fidel originally, as a young man, goes to Catholic schools, so he attends the uh, very sort of famous and private um, Jesuit school in Havana, the Berlin, uh, the Berlin School, and then he goes on to the University of Havana where he studies law um, with the intent of running for Congress. Unfortunately, um, in 1952, Fulgencio Batista sort of changes his plans when he stages a coup and, and takes over the government, which of course makes the young lawyer um, very upset. So Fidel really has kind of martyr ideas essentially in his head and so he gets he gets mad and he decides that they're going to stage a big a big protest um, oh whoops there's a slide that didn't get cut out <laughs> sorry so backing up during the 50s under Batista <laughs> you have big connection between the United States and Cuba both pers best personified by things like I Love Lucy and then also tourism which is big sort of basically the golden age like through the 50s um, not very Catholic lots of prostitution lots of gambling lots of this um, <laughs> So Fidel is not very happy about this, and he decides with his friends that they're going to attack this um, army barracks on the eastern side of the island in Santiago de Cuba, and it's essentially a suicide mission. And he's, I mean, he's, I think he's okay with it. I mean, they, they, I mean, they think they hope to succeed, but I, it's really Im, implausible to think that they would have. So on July 26 of 1953, they attack the Moncada barracks. Um, the majority of which, over 80 of the 130 or so, are killed on the spot. Several others are tortured and killed later. Fidel, though, is, sent, is captured and is sent to prison, along with his brother and some others. And he famously, at his, at his trial, um, stands up while defending himself. He also had other lawyers, because he was a lawyer, right? He stood up, and he, he famously gives this very long speech. Fidel has always been famous for giving insanely long speeches. Um, and he stands up and he says, you know, you can con condemn me if you must, but history will absolve me. And so off to prison he goes. He's sentenced to 15 years. But for whatever reason, uh, uh, Batista decides to release him in May of 1955. It's a mistake. And, <laughs> and, and they leave and they go into exile. And, of course, being a good revolutionary, he, he goes to where he where most Cuban revolutionaries or independence uh, leaders have gone in the past to raise money, which is the United States. And so they begin the M26 movement, and off he goes to New York in order to gather funds and travels around sort of the main Cuban communities in New York, in New Jersey, and in Tampa. Miami wasn't quite as big yet. Um, and so he's able to raise a lot of money. And then, of course, he's a lawyer, and so he doesn't really know that much about fighting, actually, as exampled by his failure at the Moncada. So they go to Mexico and they train there, whereupon he also meets this young Argentinian doctor who is interested in participating in a revolution. This 
foot always looks like they've been doing something else. But they're actually planning. They're planning for. They're sort of planning for this revolution that they're gonna. They're gonna fight. They are kindred spirits right off the bat. Um, and then in this sort of group of them gathers, and, and more and more of them gathers, they finally are able to, to purchase a boat uh, called the Grandma, as in, thank you, Grandma, for the cookies, now pronounced Grandma. Um, and on, this, on November 25th, they take off. The voyage was supposed to take them three days, um, but it takes them seven. They get lost at sea. It's all a mess. Um, one of the guys falls over sort of midway between, and they circle around at three in the morning to find them. And then finally, they land on the beach. Now, Fidel's not one to not popularize himself, so the entire time that he's been in the States, he's been telling the press over and over again, we're coming back. He's like, and in 1956, either we're going to be heroes or we're going to be martyrs, because again, he has this kind of martyr sense that he wants to be a martyr for some reason. Um, and I mean, I think he keeps thinking of himself as a new Jose Marti, and so that's, that's where he's at. Um, so, of course, since he's been publicizing this, Batista is quite ready for them. And so when they land, they're immediately attacked by, by the Cuban um, Air Force that sort of shoots them all up. And then they, they get up into the hills, but not quite far enough. And so then the, the Cuban army actually confronts them there and kills all but the mythical 12. And so true numbers vary as to how many there were, but the Cubans like to stick with 12, of course, because that's a holy number, right? the 12 apostles, and off they escape um, into the Sierra Maestra. They, of course, declare him dead right away because that's, you know, good for Batista. But then uh, American reporters, namely Herbert Matthews, goes in there. And this, this is where the sort of, the sort of the, the legend basically of Castro comes out is through Matthews' stories. And he's, he really sets him up as being this leader, Christ-like in many ways, leading the youth sort of through the mountains and leading this revolution and really builds him up as this hero. Matthews will take all sorts of heat from this later in his career after Fidel has declared himself communist. He asks him, Matthews asks him in the articles repeatedly, are you a communist? Are you a communist? And, and Fidel repeatedly says, no, I'm a humanist, I'm a, na you know, I'm a nationalist. And they don't, you know, and there's lots of debate as to where he decided he was a Marxist. He never declares Marxism until 1961. Che Guevara and his brother Raul perhaps were more ideologically secure before this. But, but Fidel kind of sticks on his, I'm, you know, I'm into just throwing Batista out and restoring the Constitution of 1940. Um, but this is sort of the, you know, the, the legend is born, as it were, of this, of this heroic person. Um, mm -hmm. Whoops, that's another one. Whoops, whoops, whoops. Keep going, keep going. So you got messed up. So, <laughs> there we go. So after two years of fighting, most of which takes place in the cities in Havana and Santiago, um, Fidel basically stays alive. That's really what he does up in the mountains, is that he stays there. They engage the enemy somewhat, but it really is he's this sort of media darling and this figurehead. Um, che and Raul actually do more fighting than he does, and they, they kind of do that on purpose because they realize that he's the one. And, that, and so on December 31st of 1958, Batista realizes that it's over, and he boards an aircraft for the Dominican Republic with all of his friends and a lot of money. And they, they, they fly to the DR, and then eventually he ends up in Spain, where he writes books into the 1970s saying, I see, I told you so. You should have, you should have listened to me. And so then Fidel makes a triumphant march um, into, into Havana, 
And one of the first big speeches he gives is at a um, an Air Force base right outside of the city that he sort of claims as his own. And while he's talking, white doves are released and miraculously they land on him. Not that there was any bird seed or anything on that to make that happen. And they they land there, and this is important for a couple reasons. Obviously, white doves is a sign of peace, right, for for Catholics, but almost more importantly, white doves are a sign for the Santeria population on the on the island, the Afro-Cuban population, that Fidel is a babalao, that he is a priest of Santeria, and that they should thus listen to him because he's holy, right? And so there's a lot of religious mixing that goes on toward within the revolution, and actually the 26th of July flag, which is red and black, red and black are also the colors of Chang'o, which is the god of war. And so there's selecting colors and they're doing all of these things on purpose in order to send messages to the population that they really need behind the revolution, which is the Afro-Cubans. Because I think they also know that that's, you know, those are, those are the promises that are being made or soon to be made are really going to affect these people. So everything goes well for a minute. Like, like everybody loves him. He's on Edward R. Murrow. His son comes out with a puppy and like hangs out and he's like, you know, he's in jammy jams. And so, you know, it's all okay between the United States and, and Cuba for after the, you know, for two years before the revolution, then for about six months afterwards. And then things are going to start to go badly, right? So he, he visits in April, uh, April 16th of 59, or April, he comes to the United States on bequest of the journalist, not an official visit. Eisenhower goes and plays golf in uh, Augusta instead and has Nixon meet with him. Nixon comes out of the meeting. Fidel doesn't ask for money, which kind of freaks Nixon out. And Nixon comes out saying, this guy's either the dumbest communist or the smartest communist that I've ever met. So one or the other, but he was definitely convinced that he was a communist. Um, and afterwards, a lot of things on the island start happening, which also play badly into U.S.-Cuban relations. Namely, that the, the revolutionaries make good on killing off anybody who was still loyal to Batista who remained. So they, they execute about 300 people, and they put it on television. And, and they, they hold these trials, and they basically, this kind of freaks people out in the United States as to what's going on. And they start to look at them and say, oh, maybe, maybe we should be a little bit more afraid than we are. And so these images start to change from where you go from bearded hero with puppy to, you know, shark underneath the water and a little bit scary. On our side, of course, um, oh, and you also, I'm sorry, then you also have, you know, the, the programs basically which are, you know, that are going to also bode well or bode unwell for the relationship, which is namely land reform. And so they started to do the same things that the Guatemalans had done in 1954 by taking land away, namely from large uh, land owners and companies such as United Fruit, paying them with 4% bonds, right, and then redistributing the land. Well, that's a huge no-no with Eisenhower and the Dulles brothers who sat on the board of United Fruit, and so and they'd already toppled the Guatemalan government. So pretty soon in 1959, right, about seven or eight months in is when Eisenhower actually gives the green light for, for the Bay of Pigs. Also, people who... People who are going to be adversely affected by this immediately start getting off the island. So if you were connected to Batista, you needed to go 
if you were very wealthy, you needed to go, right? And, and so this first wave of, of Cubans is going to start to leave. This is the popular image of that, right? Which is that, you know, and this is done in the 1960s, which is that on a raft, you know, out in the middle of shark-infested waters, crossing the Florida Straits, right? Making your escape from the island. And the United States viewed this as much like, you know, Eastern Europeans escaping out of, you know, from behind the Iron Curtain. And so we gave them immediate citizenship when they, when they arrived. And that, you know, and there's been degrees of that that's essentially continued until very recently. So, so this is the image, right? It's like small boats doing whatever you can to, you know, to escape, right? Even the army, everybody abandoning the island all at once. The reality was different, right? The reality was is that the first waves of immigrants came on, on on planes and and the first two waves that brought the majority on regularly scheduled air flights that flew out of twice a day that flew from Varadero to Miami you had to be on on two lists once one in the US and one in one in Cuba and they simply boarded planes and left now along with this was they started to talk about educational reform and this really freaked parents out one of the first things that Castro did was he said, okay, we're going we're gonna to have universal education. 1961 was declared the year of education. But even before that, they start shutting down the Catholic schools because they're viewed as elite institutions. Yes. Um, and so, and so he, he shuts them down. And that, of course, upsets many of the parents on the island who'd both gone there and who wanted to send their kids there. And so in 1960 begins what becomes known as Operation Pedro Pan, where 14,000 children are sent off the island by themselves to some of them to families that were already in Miami. Others were brought in and were set up by Catholic charities and were taken care of until their families arrived. Sometimes their families arrived within months. Sometimes it took years. And so there's a whole generation of Pedro Pan babies, basically, you know, who are now adults, who are now writing about how traumatic the situation was about being ripped away. And, you know, I'd love that photo. It's like, that's horrific. Um, and being... What if you were just that one person? You could just be that one person sitting right there. Just waiting. Everybody's crying. <laughs> Horrible. Um, so, um, so, of course, on our side, right, this is going on, and then there's an election. Um, Kennedy is able to beat Nixon for the presidency in 1960 and assumes office in January of 1961. He's handed the Bay of Pigs plan that the Eisenhower administration had come up with. And so on April 17th of 1961, we invade the island by, with you know, Cuban exiles, essentially, with the help of the CIA. And as we know, it's this huge, it's this huge fiasco. This only in, it angers the Catholic president, right? And he... You know, the Kennedy brothers are, you know, are very much against communism, both because it's the Cold War, but also because of a religious, their religious beliefs. And so, and this, you know, and these types of images also, which are coming out where, where Castro essentially says, okay, it's obvious that you're not going to allow us to exist. Thus, we're going to go into the arms of the largest, you know, other person on the block, which is the Soviet Union. And really, the last straw had been that they purchased oil from the Soviets in the 19, you know, in the 1960s. So Eisenhower basically goes back and forth in, you know, November and December of 1960 and eventually breaks diplomatic relations in January, January 3rd, right before Kennedy comes in. He severs diplomatic relations with Cuba and we didn't have them again until December of 2014. So, 
so this, you know, this is the new image essentially of, of Castro, which, which terrifies, you know, it terrifies the, the, the U.S. And so we attempt to invade. That's when Castro actually announces that he's a Marxist is the night before the Bay of Pigs. He says, I'm a Marxist, I'm a Marxist Leninist and I will be until the day that I die. He was a man of his word, never recanted on that. Um, and then of course, in order, you know, in order to try and survive, they, they basically are approached by the Soviets who ask them if they'd like to have missiles, you know, installed on the island to which Che Guevara and the Castro brothers say, yes, absolutely. And so they, they install, they bring in nuclear missiles and they install missiles on the island. And of course, as we're witnessing with other countries right now, this is certainly a way to get attention. And so, and they do, right? And of course, it's, it's very scary. And for any of those who, people in the room who lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, they would attest when your mom and dad to, uh, to, you know, there being a very heightened sense of tension and very scary essentially when these 13 days in October of 1962, um, take place. At the end, as we know, thank God, um, the Soviets decide to remove their missiles, right? And this kind of, this idea of defanging this monster that had been allowed to exist. Um, Kennedy, Kennedy essentially gets lucky in this and, and in some ways helps his reputation, but it's, he's still a bit tarnished, um, by, by his whole sort of encounter. Castro's furious because he's not even at the bargaining table. It's just the Soviets and the U.S. that bargain and get the missiles out. Castro's like, you should have got Guantanamo. You should have got us money. You should have got us more guarantees. The guarantee that they do get and held true was that the United States would not invade the island militarily. So we say that we wouldn't do that. And that, of course, angers the exiles to no end because that's what they want. Like They want, they want his head and they wanted, they wanted the United States to, to take care of it. Um, but essentially he goes from hero and puppy lover to, to the devil, right? And so he becomes this, he becomes this devil in, you know, in the Caribbean and someone that, who we have to contend with. Um, and essentially every administration all the way, you know, all the way through the Obama administration had Fidel as part of, you know, as sort of part of their, um, as part of their life. Um, the other person and the other kind of big, figure and image figure that's also kind of connected to Catholicism is, is Che. So in March of 19, uh, in March of 1960, um, there was an explosion. It was a, a, a boat called La Cobra was blown up in Havana Harbor, more than likely by um, exile groups and quite possibly with the CIA's help. And so Castro gives a speech about this where he forms um, what becomes known as the Committees of the Defense of the Revolution or the CDR, which is, which is the internal spy network on the island. And while he's giving this speech, um, Alfred Corda, who is essentially the, the photographer of the revolution, is there listening to Fidel. And he, you know, he described it that he, he turned around and Che emerged kind of from the crowd and stood there and he snapped three pictures which becomes known as the heroic gorilla. He, th these photos ended up in his drawer, basically, until Che's death in 1967. But then afterwards, this became the most reproduced image of all time. And so this, this photograph is sort of the, the embodiment of the revolutionary spirit and then, you know, kind of takes on this whole life of its own, right? That it's going to become this gigantic, gigantic image. So, and, and Che's death photo also in October of 1967, Che leaves the island after, after being there for, you know, for 
five or six years, he there's again if you're in if you're in Cuba, the conspiracy theory in Cuba is that the Fidel that the the Fidel brothers, the Castro brothers wanted him out, and so they send him off to go provoke revolution elsewhere. Um, he you know so he travels to Africa and he travels around um, and eventually lands in Bolivia. And unfortunately, Che believes himself and his sort of own press, and he'd written the, you know sort of uh, treatises on how to how to foment guerrilla movements, you know, and that all you needed was a vanguard in the mountains, right? <laughs> Forgetting that, you know, this whole urban underground that they had in Cuba. And so he ends up dead um, at the hands of the CIA and the Bolivian army. And even this, even this photo is kind of Christ-like, right? And there's other ones where the, where the general is actually kind of putting its fingers almost into a wound, sort of doubting Thomas-like. And and this, of course, explodes his myth, right? And so his death is truly his resurrection in the sense that he then, the image lives on, right? And it's ironic because when they're about to shoot him, they hesitate and chafe, you know, this is the story again, you know, supposedly says, you know, go on and shoot, all you're going to kill is a man, right? But then, of course, he becomes much more than a man after, as the image, right, that Corda had taken is then at first published in an Italian newspaper to announce the death and then is reproduced and reproduced and reproduced, and he becomes the figure of the revolution. There really weren't any images of Fidel anywhere, for the most part, on the island, except at Heron at the Bay of Pigs before his death. Now there's more, right? But it, but before, it was all Che and Camilo Cienfuegos and Jose Marti and sort of other rulers. But, and, you know, and he was everywhere. Che was everywhere on the island and he was everywhere around the world, right? So that this, this sort of, this figure and this sort of, this idea of like, who are you supposed to be like? Who should you emulate? Well, you should, you should emulate Che. Um, and that's, and you know, and everywhere in Latin America. And then, you know, and it goes from the serious into the, you know, the totally sort of, you know, ridiculous, getting very Warhol, Warhol-y, right? And then, you know, and, and truly, you know, this idea of him being, being this saint. Now, the Miami Cubans would have, of course, a huge problem with this. I would not recommend you wearing your Che Guevara t-shirt to Calle Ocho. But sort of, yes, the religious, the sort of religious significance of him and these martyrs on the cross, right? Or sitting at the Last Supper with all of the, with all of the, the revolutionaries, right? right? And sort of being this, this, you know, Jesus-like figure with a gun, right? Um, right? Or even sort of evoking things like, you know, the Mayan creation <laughs> myth of the Popol Vuh, right? Coming out of corn and springing out of God's body, right? Um, things like in Guatemala, where they do um, these alfumbras at uh, during Semana Santa, right during Easter week. So pictures of them there, and even the most ridiculous, right, sort of tattoos and so forth. I had to do it, uh, <laughs> right, and even even more ridiculous, right, sort of Mickey Mouse, right, <laughs> Michael Jackson, <laughs> Cher. <laughs> So on and on it goes. Um, and, and of course, he would probably be horrified now that his image has been commodified in every way. So in, in Cuba, you can buy everything Che Guevara. You can buy lighters and T-shirts and statues and paintings. It just, it's on everything. And the, the meaning in many ways has been completely lost um, in terms of who he was and what, you know, and what, he, what he stood for. And he certainly has become much larger than the man, as it were. Um, so... 
For some people on the island, things were better. The revolution certainly made things a lot better. For others, though, it didn't. And so the economics has always been a challenge. And so you have the first two waves of, of exiles who were really the wealthy and the intelligentsia and people um, who really weren't going to be able to, you know, were not going to be able to live as they had before, essentially. Most of them were, were white Cubans. Most of them had ties to the United States already, uh, had either gone to school there, certainly had visited there. Many, you know, had houses already there. So the transition from, from Cuba to exile was, was, I'm sure, painful but seamless in some ways. And they were heralded by the U.S. government as golden exiles, right, golden immigrants, because they assimilated so easily, right, and were made, you know, were made citizens instantaneously. That changed with the third wave. And so the third wave of exiles comes in 1980 amidst an economic crisis um, on the island still. There's the other side of that is that Celia Sanchez, who had been one of um, Fidel's main confidants, had died. And so a lot of people think that he was in, a, in an extreme state of mourning um, when this all took place. And essentially it's kicked off because, again, the economics um, were making people upset and and often these things start with a hijacking, essentially. And so um, four people hijacked a bus, and they rammed it through the gates of the Peruvian embassy. And in doing so, they killed a Cuban police officer who was guarding the embassy. So when Fidel demanded to the Peruvian government that they put the, the Cubans back out so that they could stand trial for killing the, the, the police officer, and they said no, Fidel said fine. He's like, then anybody who wants to go to Peru via the embassy can. And within no time, they had thousands of people within the embassy grounds, right? And this became a, a huge mess very quickly. And so the Carter administration essentially was was working with Peru and also the Costa Rican embassy was and they basically said anybody who's at the embassy can come out and what and they started flying to Peru and to, to Costa Rica but very soon just kind of bounced to to the United States. Whereupon Castro said, no more third countries, anybody who wants to go can be picked up at the port of Mariel and they can bring people out. And so instantly you had uh, this rush of boats to Mariel um, Carter said, we will accept anybody in because they are fleeing communism and we will accept them. And within a space of, of just a couple months, we got 125,000 people via all these boats. And so it was, it was a political nightmare for, um, for Carter. Castro also unloaded his jails and his insane asylums and anybody that they deemed to be not part of the revolution, i.e. dissidents, homosexuals, anyone that they didn't want around, they threw onto these boats. And so this is destroys essentially the image of, of sort of the, the, of the perfect exile. In Cuba, the images are they go from before counter-revolutionaries and especially exiles were referred to as gusanos or worms. During Mariel, they get referred to as escoria or filth, right? And they, they, they chant at them like, 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 que se vaya, no necesitamos, right? We don't need you. Go away. And so, so they get sent, um, they get sent to the states and it really does affect it does affect Miami and, and, and sort of the exile community there. And they really look at sort of, they, they in themselves, they are, they are, uh, um, 
prejudice against themselves in the sense that there is pre-Mariel and there's post-Mariel. And then, and because the, the ethnicity also changes. So you have a lot more Afro-Cubans who come and they look at it as like, well, you've been under the revolution for 20 years. You've been educated by the revolution. You benefited from the revolution. You're not ideologically pure. And so, you know, you're not perfectly anti-communist like we were, right? And so, so they come over and it really does, it really does affect it. Um, they, again, needed refugee assistance, and the Catholic Church, again, stepped in for this. So Catholic Relief Services was one of the big institutes that helped to place Cuban refugees. The, a lot of the images and propaganda that come out of this are like, you know, little school children. But most of the Marialitos were, were single men between the ages of 18 and 25. They weren't just little kids or families like before. And so it really does become a problem when there is two instances where um, one of the, in one case, the exile, you know, the Marialito killed his host family. That was very bad. And then on another one, they, they attacked somebody. So there was a criminal element in it, but it wasn't, it's not as bad as it was made out to be. Out of the 125,000, 25,000 had criminal records, but in Cuba, you can be arrested for loitering, you can be arrested for not working, you can be arrested for anything. Out of that 25,000, 3,000 were truly criminals. Many were sent back, um, but nevertheless, it had kind of been sown, and it also corresponded essentially to the rise of cocaine in South Florida. And so you have a lot of crime going on, and Florida gains a bad reputation. And so the, the predominant image, right, of, of Cubans changes from golden exile to Tony Montana and Scarface and Miami Vice. And so it really, this set of image between the places definitely changes. Um, and the exiles are the ones who've produced, obviously, a lot of the images about the relationship. And so actually in the gallery, there's a whole wall basically of small images that were produced by them against, against the Castro government. So, so both sides, both sides are telling the story. The other, the, the next wave, which kind of launches into another good story is in when the, when the breakup of the, how am I doing? Am I doing all right? Yeah, I would say maybe like 10. 10. Let's go 10. I'm like, I'm at 10. Um, 7. Um, so um, when, when the Soviet Union breaks up uh, essentially between 1989 and 1991, the, the Cuban economy, which had become completely dependent upon it, uh, plummets. And so you end up with a situation of people literally having, you know, it's, it's really uh, um, the end of oil, essentially. They've done studies on it. So it's just like there's no gas, there's no fuel. That means that there's no, um, there's really no agriculture. And so that you have real effects on the ground where Cuban diets went from about 3,000 to somewhere around 1,500 or 1,800 a day, right? You had people who actually died of malnutrition. You also have a 25 to 50% drop in type 2 diabetes and heart disease because everybody's on bikes and walking, and they document all of this too over the decade, and they revert back to essentially pre-oil you know, pre methods to grow food. This, of course, sets off a lot of anger and angst in, in Havana, culminating in a very large riot that takes place in 1994. Fidel actually goes and walks amongst the crowd and tries to calm them down, which is pretty amazing that he would, that he would do this. But again, he was sort of viewed as this, you know, more, he's more than just, you know, the leader of the country. You sort of have this religious thing. Um, uh, but then what he does is he says, anybody who wants to leave can leave. And so in 1994, we have the fourth wave of, of exiles. And, it, and this is truly the Balsero, this is when they're actually rafting. And so it's the Balsero crisis where another 40,000 people um, leave. 
those that survived, the 40,000, um, were picked up and were taken to Guantanamo Bay and processed. Uh, numbers vary, but some estimates are as high as double that didn't make it. And so possibly somewhere in the neighborhood, 80,000 people died attempting this. Um, it was very dangerous. And it, and it went on essentially for just a few months in 1994. This is where you got the wet foot, dry foot policy, which essentially said if Cubans made it, they got citizenship. If they didn't, right, they would be taken back to the island. And that was an effort to stop this, stop this exodus. And you have classic images coming out like this, where this guy, you know, had cut himself away from his compadres right on his raft and had drifted with just this knife fighting off sharks and then eventually he's picked up and the other, you know, seven people that he was with didn't make it. And so it's, you know, it's another, it's another tragedy um, amidst this time in the special period is when you have the first visit from a pope to the island. Fidel had been, technically Fidel was excommunicated in 1962 by Pope uh, John the 23rd, I believe. Yes, thank you. Um, um, and so he... Uh, and so uh, he had been excommunicated just for being a communist. I guess you, you could not even be a communist. And, and so he was excommunicated for that, but he did a lot of other things that got him excommunicated. So when Pope John Paul II goes there, it's a huge deal in 1998 to essentially announce you know, that the Catholic Church is, was, was opening to them and Fidel was also opening. And so they also were allowing more church services. They had canceled Christmas um, back in the 1970s. That wasn't allowed anymore. And so in the 1990s, they allowed Christmas to happen. Again, and this is all because this economic crisis is happening and you know you need religion right i mean you fill churches when people are suffering and so so Fidel's not dumb. And then, he, you know, he also, if you notice, he wasn't in his traditional fatigues. He dressed, you know, in a suit to, to greet the pontiff. And, you know, when Pope John Paul was there, he denounced the U.S. embargo. He called for better relations. Right? And he's, you know, and he's not the only one who comes. The year after, then, you get this other famous case. And really, he's kind of the last exile in this um, you know, in this sort of stage or, you know, I mean, um, sort of famous one, which is Elian Gonzalez. And so in November of 1999, um, Elian's mother, along with 12 others, takes him. Elian's mom and her, uh, his dad were divorced, but they shared custody of the child. He was still, Juan was still involved in Elian's life, and she takes him without permission. So they leave, um, and unfortunately the boat, um, the boat sinks. It, it, it gets, uh, it's raining really hard. It fills with water. They had inner tubes with them, and Elian and two others survive. But the images that come out of this are of Elian rescued on this tube, you know, wrapped in swaddling clothes, surrounded by dolphins with heavenly light, right? And he becomes this religious figure basically overnight, right? He's taken in by his uncle and then his cousin who sort of becomes his guardian and, and thus ensues this massive custody battle for this child, whereas Juan, his father, says, that's my six-year-old, I need him back. The, the, the Miami family says, no, you can't get him back. His mother died to give him freedom. He has to stay. And he's looked upon in many ways as this sort of Cuban, you know, by the Miami Cubans as this Cuban Moses who's going to, you know, right, there he is, Moses, leading, leading them out of, leading them out of exile and back to the promised land. And there's all sorts of crazy propaganda and everybody jumps on the Elian story in this massive way. And he's super manipulated by, by the U.S. media and by his, his, by the Miami relatives. Uh, Hill, uh, I'm sorry, not Hillary Clinton, sorry. 
<laughs> Bill Clinton and uh, Janet Reno, um, who's attorney general at the time, decide that, oh, see, there's one that's gone, decide that he has to be uh, repatriated, right, and stop being a pawn in this game. Um, the Miami Cubans say absolutely not. And so thus ensues all of these protests. And so in Cuba, all these posters are produced. There's one in the gallery. Well, saving Elian. They, they march continuously on the U.S. Embassy, um, so much so that they actually create a protest space that becomes known as the anti-imperialist plaza of Jose Marti, and they erect this statue of Marti holding a child, pointing accusingly at the embassy. It also echoes a famous uh, poster and photo of Fidel during the Bay of Pigs holding a gun and pointing, which is also up, so you can see those both. Um, and so they, they hold massive protests in front of the what was then the intersection is now the embassy again. Um, these were not these were not organic in any way. They would bring buses to your work and they would pick you up and say, today you're going to protest. And you'd get a t-shirt and a sign and there'd be 200,000 people out in front of the embassy and that was the protest. And so most of the signs were destroyed afterwards because nobody cared really about the issue in Cuba. At least they talk about it in that way now. But massive amounts of people out in front and that's right in front of the embassy. In Miami was the same thing where Miami Cubans also protested this in a, ma in a major way. And again, it took on more of a religious significance where they claimed that the Virgin Mary had appeared in a window, in a swish of a window. That's Mary, by the way. And, and, that, and that, you know, God again had sent Elion and that we had to preserve Elion's existence here because it was God's will. But, Eventually, Janet Reno had her way, and there's a photo that's not there. That's too bad. And they took, and they took Elion out forcefully and reunited him with his dad. And then his uncle was left with the museum. There's the photo, actually, of them taking him out, right? And he's, he basically turned the apartment into a shrine to Elion, and then Elion is now back in Cuba. I think there was a re recent CNN special on Elion that he talks about this and how little he actually remembers of the whole whole thing. And so then really quickly and, and heading fast into the end here, the last, the last sort of bits of propaganda was Christmas having been restored on the island. Uh, the U.S. intersection decided in 2004 that they would stick a number 75 under Santa. And this was the number of political prisoners put in prison that year. When Fidel demanded that this be put down, taken down, they said no. And so, uh, disappointment. Then they started putting up these billboards. <laughs> There's another billboard that I'm not missing. Um, and, and this sort of billboard war went back and forth with us putting big letters in the embassy and, you know, saying phrases from Martin Luther King and saying free Cuba, right? Um, and then Fidel in response erected all these flags in front of the embassy to block it out. And so there was this war of images basically that went on for, for about four years, uh, four years back and forth that it was finally, finally brought down in, in 2009. They had another papal visit in 2012 when Pope Benedict came. Fidel was starting to, to really, he was ill. He had given, he had stepped down in 2006 and turned it over uh, to his brother in 2008. Um, was getting more and more ill. Um, the, the church was much more happening by that point in time and sort of on, these are from visits where it's like the churches are very active. People are very much going, right? This is at, um, 
Our Lady of Charities, which is sort of a big pilgrimage place on the island. Um, and then and that's in the interior of the church. So they're very, they're very much, it's very much alive and well as far as Catholicism goes. And then there's other religions, sort of mainline Protestantism, and even some, I even have seen some Muslims on the island as well. And then, of course, the last part with, with the Catholic Church was that in 2013, uh, the Catholic Church brokered secret talks between Raul Castro and, and President Obama in order to work on normalizing the relationship. And in uh, December of 2014, or D17 as it's known on the island, they simultaneously announced this normalization. And that's what's kind of led us to where we are. So with most people favoring, reestablishing, and ending the embargo, except for sort of really hardcore Miami Cubans who don't who don't want that to happen, and then just sort of seeing this sort of swath within Cuban relations, so from when Fidel takes over until until now. So there we are. Well, that was it. <laughs> Forty-one minutes. <laughs> We have time for a couple questions if you would like to uh, ask. Yes, I'm not a student. I don't want to preempt the student from asking. Oh, no, that's all right. I <laughs> uh, wonder if you could comment on the <coughs> Cuban tradition of, of Masonism, Masonics, in early liber, you know, liberation, uh, Marti and other enlightened Cubans sort of rejecting Catholicism because of its alliance with, with Spain. Only a little bit. So here's where you're getting, that's good. You got right to the end of my knowledge really fast. Um, there's lots of, there was lots of, there are lots of Masons who are, who are on the island, much like in the United States, right? That this is where people gathered and kind of were able to talk in secret, especially about independence movements. So people like, um, like Cespedes, right, and Marti, and people who were independence leaders belonged um, and were able to use Masonic lodges of, of places of secrecy. And certainly, certainly there was a lot in terms of looking at Spanish institutions like the church, right, or even like bullfighting that were considered to be colonial mainstays and were rejected for things that were considered more modern and usually more North American, i.e. Protestantism and baseball, for example. And so, so the Masons did certainly play a role. And you can see there are still, there are still lodges um, on the island. I don't know if they are allowed to actually be Masons right now anymore. But they certainly, they certainly did play a role in terms of like giving people places to meet in secret before, uh, before the Wars of Independence, which began. The three wars are like... 1868, 1879, and then eight, 1895. That's probably a very surfacey answer to that question. Yes? Hey, uh, uh, you mentioned that uh, Castro closed down the Catholic schools. Uh, more broadly, how much did he crack down on religious practice in the Catholic Church? So again, they, they officially became atheists, right? And so anyone who Anyone who attended, you know, who went, there were still churches that were there and there were still priests. There were always priests. A lot of priests left and a lot of priests were thrown out. Um, but the problem was, was that anybody who attended mass could not be in the party. And if you can't be in the party, then you can't obtain any sort of level of power. Right. And so there was definitely and he changes that. In, in the 1990s and basically says, yep, you can be in the party and you can be Catholic too. And so for, for quite a while, there was, if you were a practicing Catholic, then you weren't going to get ahead 
um, within the society. Yes. What does your crystal ball tell you about where the U.S.-Cuba relations are? It's, it is certainly it is certainly a mysterious thing at the moment. Um, oh, the question was where where are we going in terms of U.S. Cuban relations at the moment? So it looked good <laughs> for a minute. Uh, everything was kind of tracking okay, right? Uh, opening embassies, direct flights, uh, you know, having uh, these cruise ships show up, and then. Trump said, we want to roll back. It's not a good deal, right? That's his sort of phrase. And so, but his announcement that he made in Miami didn't really do much, as far as I could tell. So the flights are still there. The cruise ships are still there. What he said was that it wasn't going to be as easy to kind of uh, check off the box and go. And so what might happen is that if it discourages people from going, then the airlines will cancel their flights, right? The cruise ships, I have no idea how you could ever claim that you're on any kind of educational thing or <laughs> cultural thing whatsoever. You're just on a cruise ship and you dock, right? And so those will probably continue. But now the weird thing is this sonic thing and the fact that, and I was in the embassy this last time I was there and I didn't get sonicked. Um, maybe I could claim that later. But, um, but it, it, uh, so this closing down basically and throwing out of diplomats and they've thrown Cuban diplomats out, even though the Cubans are like, it's not us, right? They're like, we're, they're trying to cooperate. They're trying to figure it out. And so who knows? Like what's, who knows what that is? You know, is it the Russians? Is it the Chinese? Is it us? We don't know. And so is it the North Koreans? Right. Who, who knows what's going on? But apparently there's some sort of thing that's making people sick. So hopefully, hopefully this normalizes and hopefully, you know, we can start opening it up even more. Oh. Nope. There's lots of great people I'll be at here. UP, and I'm, I'm sure you'd agree with me that Dr. Blair Woodard is one of them. Please join me in thanking him.